Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Jen Bailey. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Winderlich podcast. Welcome to episode two for season nine. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, the 2nd of April, 2019. One day shy of Drew attaining level OX33 in his least favorite one-player shooter. I'm Jennifer Bailey, here with my fanboying Season 9 co-host, Drew Freeman. Thanks, Jen. On this episode, we have Erica Sadoon. Erica is a super experienced developer, working on the Mac from the early days, a very early adopter of iOS development. She's a prolific author, having written the iPhone Developer Cookbook, iOS Auto Layout Demystified, Swift Style, Swift Documentation Markup, and so, so many more. She takes up at least half of one of my shelves in the office. She's also a regular contributor to the Swift Evolution Project, having submitted many proposals, and I have a question for her on that in a moment. She holds a PhD in computer science from Georgia Tech's renowned Graphic Visualization Usability Center, and of course, don't miss her popular blog, ericasadoon.com, where technology meets something or other. (laughs) In this episode, we're going to discuss style. Specifically, Erica is going to take us through her five strings, and then later Drew talks about his project woes over his desire for the perfect UI elements. Erica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. What a thrill to be on the podcast. We are absolutely thrilled to have you here. As I said, I I am personally fanboying because, well, first of all, the first time I came in contact with you was through something called Erica's Tools. I remember this. And if I remember correctly, that was one of the earliest entries I found to jailbreaking around iOS 3, was it? Is that correct? No, it was iOS 1. It was iOS 1. Well, I, I always consider iOS 1, go write a web page and you're done. Yeah, this was in iOS 1. It was about two months after iOS, and well, I was, wasn't called iOS, it was iPhone OS. Mm-hmm. The iPhone was released and it was announced in January at Macworld. Right. And then June-ish, let's call it June-ish. June-ish is about as accurate as we really need. Mm-hmm. Around then, the iPhone came out, and then the jailbreaking stuff started happening. I had nothing to do with that. I was sort of a passenger on the jailbreak train, and one of the developers came up with what was an ARM toolchain, ARM being the processor that the iPhone mm-hmm. runs on, and that was the middle of that summer, so it was not much more than I would say a month and a half after the iPhone came out. And so we had access at that point to creating very, very simple applications and command line tools. So even though I started off with a few things that were apps first, my first apps were monitoring processes and Mm -hmm. running some predefined lines of code. I always loved the command line. I still love the command line. And so I was writing a lot of just little utilities. And I had no idea how to host them. Uh, at that point, uh, people were starting to put together package managers, and there was something called installer. And mm-hmm. then after that was um, Kydia, which really should be pronounced Cydia. But fortunately, Jay- I, I always thought it was Cydia. Yeah, yeah, but Jay, Jay says no. And there's a reason 
which is it's named after the apple worm. It's named after <laughs> an actual creature. And so I believe it's Kydea, but nobody calls it that. It was Cydia. And it was an application package manager based on, you know, a Linux APK sort of thing. apt-get, I think, was how you accessed it. And so I managed to convince some people to host uh, my stuff because I didn't have a website and I didn't know how to do it. But I did know how to write some simple utilities. So things that were missing that were just helpful in getting things accomplished, I would just put into these tiny, tiny little applets and, you know, kind of gather them up into something called Erica's Utilities. From that point on, anybody who who found anything on jailbreak and they tell you to go to uh, Kydia, like I said, I always thought it was Cydia, and then they'd say, and the first thing you want to download... <laughs> just say Cydia. The first thing you want to download is Erica's Utilities and Tools because that will get you started. And that was pretty much... Our first look at what would be iOS, we got to see some of the uh, some of the UI kit classes and the well, like. At that point, what I was doing is was I was going through the frameworks and basically dumping the frameworks and reading mm-hmm. through them. And I know this is a weird kind of obsessive kind of hobby, but I I enjoyed it, and I started learning how the system was put together and how to make apps and how to create them. And so I started building apps after that. Um, Some, you know, apps that were, you know, they, they were, they tended towards a very simple, very prosaic, but things that I really needed to do. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was just file management. There are people still trying to jailbreak, even under iOS 12. Oh, yes, there are. I thought that uh, the jailbreaking was slowly fading into uh, into obscurity. It mostly has faded into obscurity because it's a pain. Well, I mean, Apple keep, it, it keeps closing up all of the, the loopholes to get you in there. Yeah, they do. It's a philosophy thing. People like to have control over their systems. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, people like to have safety, security. They like to have the ability to upgrade whenever they need to. It's the same thing that happened to the Hackintosh community. On the one hand, it was glorious being able to install Mac OS or OS X as it was on a system that really fit you better. The Dell little mini Inspiron, I think they were called, these tiny Mm -hmm. netbooks, they were, I had like, Four of them, my kids went through them. They were in part of our family for years. The perfect form factor, and they just aged out. But you couldn't upgrade them. You ran into Mm -hmm. those walls. And even though when you purchase a Mac, this does have a life limitation. You know, you eventually will age out. You age out more slowly. And right now, I'm going into a work situation where I am going to be needing to work on a MacBook Pro. And I have teeny tiny hands, and the MacBook Pro keyboard is terrible. I mean, it's it's for big guys. It's for, you know, people who can reach. And it feels terrible. I love mechanical keyboards. And so what I'm going to be doing is connecting it to 
monitors connecting it to a mechanical keyboard there is no yep. reason for me to be having a laptop if i could have something like an apple tv running mac os that would be perfect for me especially lightweight and portable because the mac mini as much as i love it is not that portable but i would love to be able to have something that i could just grab hook in a few wires i'm good to go and then be yeah, able I, to uh, here and there and to, to, with, with my macbook pro it is it's it's all docks and cables uh i don't even use the keyboard and i feel badly because i enjoy the touch bar but it's a toy i i i have my my other keyboard and and mouse uh and super trackpad whatever they call it this iteration and i really i barely even touch the actual unit itself what i want to be able to do is basically have an ipad and use it as an ipad and this is never going to happen by the way because I'm going back to the mindset of the, the Mac Duo. Do you remember the Duo? Yeah, the Duo Dock. The Duo Dock, which would allow you to take a device and move it from work to home to, you know, in theory, the coffee shop. Not that they had really yeah. coffee shops back then. But <laughs> you know, there was a time before Starbucks. Uh, but what I want to be able to do is take my world with me and be able to work at the, the coffee shop and not have to use that horrible screen and the horrible, I know the screen is beautiful, but I can't see the screen because I'm nearly blind. And I can't use the keyboard because my, my hands are too small. And then I'm always resting my forearms on the trackpad. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a constant misery. I hate using laptops. Laptops are just not working for me. I've got to say those old little Dell ones worked pretty well for me, but you know, it's a different time of my life and so forth. The current MacBooks don't. Even the Air seems to have that problem mm -hmm. where you've still got a lot of real estate for the trackpad on the Air, so you're still making a large reach for it. I admit I have slightly larger hands, but I'm using the... Uh, the uh, the Bluetooth keyboard, which is just the keyboard by itself, so I don't have to reach over anything. I keep the trackpad off to my right. Mm -hmm. And we now are in an age of very cheap screens. Mm -hmm. And the screens are becoming lighter, more portable, bigger, better resolution. And soon they're going to become folding and they may be, become rollable. And yeah, I, I, when I was young, I had an Apple II and I would actually... For places that I was teaching classes as a kid, I would drag along my Apple II and my <laughs> television set, and that was a nightmare. And and to say television set alone should be a, an indicator to anybody over the age of thirty-five of how big a behemoth a portable TV that was about fourteen inches was. It was a huge monster of a box. This pretty much takes us into to the main topic, which is discussing style. And uh, I had your, uh, your your Swift Style book, the first edition. And now, when did the second edition release? Two days ago, three days ago, something like that. Really recently. It's fresh. It's hot off the shelf. It still has that new bread smell. Now, I should be really clear that very little changed in the book between the first edition and the second edition. I really just kind of refreshed it, made the Swift just look a little bit more modern because the language has moved. But the recommendations haven't, for the most part, changed. Of course, we're going to have the, the link to the book in the show notes. But can you give us a couple of 
specific high points so that people can understand why this is like a fantastic book, other than the fact that you wrote it, it's out, etc. The thing I always say about style is that when you write code, you're not just writing to the compiler. Your code, you're writing to yourself. You're writing to your future self. You are writing to everybody in your team. You're writing to the maintainers of the code. You're writing to people who are referencing your code to figure out how you did things. You're writing to a greater and wider community. And as I said, don't forget that future you is an idiot. Past me is an idiot too. I've looked at some of the codes. I, I, I've looked at some of the code I wrote in the past. Well, that's true too. I mean, I admit it. I, past me, I always get furious at past me because past me didn't do it right. And then future me has to figure it out. And what style does is it lowers the effort it takes to think about what you're looking at in code. If you're in, you know, some sort of, you know, computer science sort of mode, you'll say it will lower the cognitive burden of understanding what's going on. And if you're talking to real people, what you say is it makes it clear and understandable and maintainable. I have to admit, as a developer, I've looked back and gone, what was I thinking? And the one excuse that I've always used is, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but I I do appreciate the approach of if you try for clarity when you first write it, when you go back, it's not a morass to dig through. It's it's something that you can at least say, okay, I see what I was thinking. It still was the wrong thing. When you use consistent code style, it takes some things out of the equation. You no longer have to even think because you are simply following some rules that you've agreed upon. And so the amount of information, the amount of conflicting and rioting ideas that you have to go through to find the point of what this code is about is reduced. It's like dusting your code. It, it makes it clean and shiny and allows you just to see what your intentions are. Because code is all about, I hate to use the word codifying because that just means to put into code, but it's about codifying (laughs) your intentions and taking things out of your brain space and the meat space and putting it into language space. And so code works at, you know, all these different levels. So style can be something simply as where do you put your commas? How do you do your colons? You know, do you always use consistent colons? How do you do your braces and so forth? But it can also be how do you approach things like checking arrays for emptiness? And if, in my personal opinion, and this is a very opinionated book, I even made the uh, publisher put down as a subtitle. What is, what is a subtitle? It's something like an opinionated guide to an opinionated language. But I think that if you compare an array to the empty array, as opposed to using the is empty property, that you're missing out on a bit of expressiveness. And if you adhere to this every single time, you will never think of it again. Because when you use an unusual construct or you use constructs that are not the same always every time you do it the same over and over, it's like looking at somebody who has a bit of spinach in their teeth and you're having lunch with them. (laughs) It's really hard to move past that 
and listen to those wonderful words of philosophy and wisdom and warmth and love that this person is sharing with you because you're focused on the wrong thing. And it's, again, like a window. A good style is like looking through a clear window. And if you use inconsistent style, you're seeing the little specks and um, sneasel bits and the fingerprints and so forth. You focus on the wrong things. And good style helps you focus on your code instead. So can I set up an example of a, a coding issue? And would you be able to, to give me a rough idea of let's say, what would be best stylistically? You're going to hate my answer, but go ahead. Do it. Oh, no. No, I am more than prepared. Uh, right now, I'm dealing with code that is meant to run on the watch and the iOS device and the TV device. And at the top of my code, I will often have hash if OS this, else if OS that, else if OS that. <laughs> What do you feel is the best way to handle code that is, for the most part, let's say 80% going to be the same between all three platforms, but then you've got that 20% carve out? How do you best handle that? Through extensions? I, and I'm prepared for to, to not hate your answer. Because my answer is always the way that you and your team do it is the best way. <laughs> your code does not smell. If you're doing it and it works for you and it's consistent, that's all style cares about. Now, I'm going to tell you how to do it from a developer's point of view because, man, you're doing it all wrong. But <laughs> I'm telling you, in terms of style, so long as you are consistent, so long as your code is getting the job done and you have adopted certain practices, mm -hmm. stick to those practices. Consistency means that you know exactly what to expect. And those have to rise organically from your particular organization. And generally, if you join an organization, you go and adhere to whatever their house style sheet is. You don't go in there and start making waves. The worst thing happens is when somebody takes over a project and they start doing it in a different way. And then another person comes into the project and they start doing it in another different way and so on and so forth. The more that an organization can have a set of standards across all their code, the better it's going to be, even if you disagree with what those standards are. Right. So I disagree with how you've approached it, but damn it, I'm going to support your way of doing it because that is your way of doing it. And go you. Erica, the book is fantastic. I'm glad that I've gotten my hands on it. it the first edition was fantastic. I'm really going to suggest the second edition for everybody out there. The link will be in the show notes. We're going to take a little bit of a break. And then when we get back, I will talk about my woes trying to figure out how to get my perfect UI element into my project. We'll be back in just one moment. The RayWenderlick.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. This RayWenderlick.com podcast is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on phone screens, take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your interest or your cover letters. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you get to go straight to the final interviews with the companies on their platform. It's like the common app for software engineers. TripleByte does not look 
look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. And I can appreciate that. Being in the industry for 35 years, I'm entirely self-taught. My undergraduate study was in theater and I left school to do my first job. So I don't carry a bachelor's, no bachelor's of arts, no bachelor's of science. And that's the one thing I'm often trying to hide or misdirect on my resume. With TripleByte, they'd care more about the coding experience that I have and not worry about that one little fact. Apply now at triplebyte.com slash Ray. That's triplebyte.com, byte, B-Y-T-E, as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. back to the Ray Winderling podcast where we're talking with Erica about Swift style and now we'll kick it over to Drew. Yeah, I find with this season that we're going back to that format where we're going to have the host each talk about some kind of tech or some kind of developmental experiences they're doing and that way we can sort of spread things around and this gives Erica a chance to come in and go, why are you doing that? And give give any opinion she may have. I know she doesn't really have many much in the way of a lot of strong opinions. <laughs> God help me for going there. My current situation in my project is the evils that I consider out of the table view in iOS. It's a it's a wonderful view. I love the the delegate pattern. I love the the data structure pattern for that. I love putting tables together. The biggest problem that I have with tables and now with the collection view as well is paging through large amounts of data. Now in the table view, you do have the section header thumb view that you can use where you basically see an index of your sections and you can click on them. This works really well for things like songs in iTunes and it works fairly well for your contacts with alphabetics. But that's where things sort of fall down if you don't have sections that work nice and clearly with the same amount of data within each section. For example, if, say, you're writing a book viewer or a document viewer where you have six chapters, of which the first chapter is an intro, the second chapter, third chapter, and fourth chapter has a lot of data in it, and then the six chapters may be an index. I think my indexing is off there, but you get the general idea. It's you don't want to necessarily just click to the beginning of each chapter. Maybe you want to thumb through pages. So what were my options? Well, my options are to either use the section, uh, the section header API or to add in my own scroller. Aha. Scrollers in iOS are only horizontal. And of course... This immediately got me searching online for what I could find, whether it be a third-party scroller extension that I was going to add in or if it was going to be something similar. And I came across an article from about two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, in, uh, and I'll use the, I'll put the link into the, into the show notes from uh, Swift Notions called The Curious Case of the Missing Vertical Slider. And it, of course, says, well, there's one of three steps. You can basically... Extend the slider and then do a slider transform, flipping it halfway, but you're not going to necessarily get auto layout that way. You can subclass the UI slider and then flip it sideways with a transform and still not get yourself into your auto layout. Or, of course, what's your last option? Roll your own, which everybody always says when you're doing UI, if you're going to try to match something, either do all your own to roll it or don't try to copy apples. 
So this is where I'm stuck at the moment with that general view of where do I go next? Erica, do you have any general opinions so far? I have so many thoughts. It's hard to try to put them into order. So let's start with a quick flip on the right, the index, the section index. Mm -hmm. It is something that's very old. And I think a lot of developers feel it's very dated. I, I could list that for several of the UI control elements nowadays. I don't even want to get into the uh, UI date picker. Oh yeah, I, I, I get that. Apple needs to reach for some refreshed and fresher UI elements. But I don't think overloading that or even abusing that is necessarily the right way to go. You can imagine things that would do more or less the same idea, but put tabs on the right. Although on a phone, you have very limited horizontal space. Yeah, it's you look into the photo app and you try to zoom. Now, I'm a parent. I have a 12-year-old child, which means there's a period of time about 10 years ago where I have about 4,000 photos. And it's not easy to select a photo through a collection view. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually have the section heads. I find myself I find myself wishing for some of the UI elements that I used to have over in the Mac world, but we discussed offline the idea of that crossover between UI and where it is on iOS and where it may or may not be going on the Mac and we're going to try to avoid that little mess right now. But the most sane thing that I could come up with was to try to create a vertical-based slider to the left of my table view, which sits on the left side of my interface, that is more of a complete slider to match the scroll. That, of course, introduced its own little problems because if you update the value of the slider when you scroll, you also want to update the scroll when you update the slider, and then you get contention. And it's not just that. You're talking about in vertical presentation, you're going to take up a significant amount of space because the human finger is going to be about 44 points on a screen that is going to be somewhere 320 points or more. Mm -hmm. So you've sacrificed your primary thing, the thing that's the most important to your user for this relatively less important task. It may still may be a very valuable task, but what is the user using this particular application for? And the answer is, they are using it to read through the information. So you have to say, who else has looked at this problem and how have they solved it? And we don't want to go look at contacts. We don't want to look at the music app because those are selections. The entire point of those tables and those controls is to navigate down to a particular selection, which then gets you to what the user's use case is. And the user's use case in there is to listen to music or to call someone or, you know, perhaps do something else with that contact information. When you're dealing with scrolling text and you are dealing with scrolling text, correct? Oh, yeah. I basically have a table with lines from a document. Okay. You have to ask yourself, has Apple done this already? Before you even start looking at new and creative ways to twist your some vertical horizontal slider and deal with the woes of auto layout, which I'm not 100% convinced that it is excluded from auto layout because I believe that you can tell auto layout 
your dimensions, if you're playing games like that. But leaving the auto layout thing to the side, your consumer is there to look through text, find text, and to quickly move through text if necessary. I would say looking at text is their number one thing they want to do. Who's done it? Where has Apple done it? And they've done it in iBooks or now books. They lost their eye. How does Apple do it? They do have a slider. It's a horizontal slider. And it's a horizontal slider because they're dealing with the notion of pages. Furthermore, it happens at the bottom of the screen. So you no longer are taking up a major portion of your presentation and cutting away at what the user is interested in. So by transforming from a vertical scroll to a horizontal page flip, you instantly first preserve the user's interest, second, allow fast movement, and third, balance the two in a way using Apple-supplied user interface elements. Now, you might say, but that breaks what I was building. (laughs) But what you were building is not a table view. What you're building is a way to get information in text form to your user, and it doesn't break that. I like that. You always have to let your user guide you. Your users need empathy with your user. And what your user is trying to accomplish is the most important touch point for any development task. You, as a developer, and I warned you that I would go here, (laughs) see features and you go, hey, wow, I can add a feature and it will be cool. And let me tell you, your users will not use them or need them or want them unless it's sourced from what they're trying to accomplish. Users are not impressed by lots and lots of features. Users are impressed with getting to their goal. And every feature you add is something that you end up having to support because you can never remove it without people throwing a fit. Because that one guy in Michigan, he is going to have a hissy because you removed it and he's going to give you that one-star review. Add new features as if they were trying. I don't even have a good metaphor to take your daughter away. (laughs) Hey, give me your daughter. Give me the daughter. No, you're not having her. She's mine. No, you only share that feature with the user if it supports the bottom line of your product. Your product needs to be driven by a vision that empowers your user. And especially when you're working with iOS, because the mindset of the desktop versus the tablet versus the phone versus the watch are all very different things. Thank you. And yes, yes, you can do Photoshop on the watch, but God, why would you? I, I've tried to explain to people that that the watch, that the tablet, that the phone all have their own specific paradigm for either consumptive or creative process, and that each one has its own domain of usage that really defines 
good things to be done on it and bad things. And not just the domain of usage. It's also the interaction time. Mm -hmm. And I will apologize in advance, but what is the ideal interaction time for using an app on the iPhone? Uh, It's under 30 seconds, if I remember correctly. It is basically the duration of a visit to a bathroom. Really? Wow. That makes that makes perfect sense. A watch is a glance. Which is why I thought that the watch was genius, because I was tired of taking my phone out of my pocket to look at the time. And for time, all you need is a glance. Mm-hmm. To read an article, iPhone. To create, iPad. To get work done, Serious work, not filling out a form because you're doing an inspection and you are an agent who's, you know, seeing an adjuster or someone, you know, with with a wrecked card because you're filling out a form on an iPad in that case. But if you are creating a document or coding or doing things in depth, that's what the desktop gives you. And most people live on the shorter ends of interaction. And when you introduce features, You have to take that time, that interaction time, into account. Every feature has a time associated with it. And your job as a developer is to get your user to accomplish their goal, whether it's playing a game, reading a book, or anything like that, within the interaction time that is allocated to you by the natural space of the device. And with an iPhone, That is a very limited and very narrow few minutes of interaction that you want to make the best possible for that user. I've actually found that since finally adding an iPad into my cadre of tools, that between the watch and the iPad, I use my iPhone very, very little. I I use it predominantly for texting, for phone, for reading emails. Other than that, I really find I don't use my iPhone very much at all. People take pictures. People scan receipts. People will go and check things. They check in with their phone. Mm -hmm. They will, believe it or not, actually answer phone calls and talk with people. Wait, we can use this thing as a phone? I know, Shaka. Yeah. I know. Don't you hate it? (laughs) All you on your phone. How dare you turn my iPhone into a phone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really important when you think about texting is that you don't think about the entire conversation. Mm-hmm. You think about each text as a single interaction. But by having that history, it gives your user context so that they can use that time really, really efficiently. Time is very compressed when you design any sort of interaction for iOS. Wow. And when the watch is in the equation, um, how does the watch relate to like context comes to mind? I guess that's not how I meant to word my question, but um, context seems very important with the watch. You have to ask, where is the watch doing an amazing job? Where does it just have home runs? Apple Pay. Okay. Oh, yeah. Apple Pay. Quick. There. You don't reach into your backpack or your your back pocket to get the phone. Looking at the time, you just glance at it. You can use it for Siri. One of the things I love is when I'm driving, it will kind of pulse on my wrist when it's time to turn. That's great. I love the watch for navigation. It's a little assistant that lets you know, hey, it might be nice if you stood up right now or took a deep breath. 
a lot of the time with the Apple Watch, the best interactions, you're not looking at it. You're not touching it. You're not doing any of that. It's giving you information. It is coaching you. It is giving you status. It's giving you all those things. And yes, there are the times that you're simply talking into your wrist and feel like an idiot, but it does it in a way that you didn't have to do all those other tasks to find your phone because the phone always slips into your notebook. I don't feel like an idiot. I feel like Dick Tracy. <laughs> I feel like a Star Trek in a way. It's not quite the communicator, but almost. Or I think of it as a remote control for my phone sometimes. <laughs> You think, where would, where would we go next if Apple had no rules, no physics, no laws? Wouldn't you imagine a virtual Siri just following you around, giving you hints and suggestions about things that you're doing next, taking the context of what you're doing, where that zone of interaction actually goes to zero, where it actually becomes a push system as opposed to a pull, where... Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, <laughs> strawberries are on sale today. <laughs> and yeah. you like strawberries, and they're low in their fridge. I can't That's wait to open my field of vision, too. <laughs> I will say that it, it does still run the problem that you have to occasionally get onto the phone and tweak the notifications that go to the watch, because I can tell yeah. you, I get buzzed every time I pass my local drugstore chain, no matter which drugstore it is it's like ah would you like to get the deal and i'm like i need to turn that notification off you have notifications turned on i didn't know it would even do that that's horrible (laughs) well it's good because i can i have it turned on because i do check mail for certain accounts Uh and when i get mail for certain accounts i need to be able to respond to it immediately Um, sometimes but the way it interacts with you through hearing and through touch Mm-hmm. Are they are really radically changing way we think about computing because this is another branch of computing, and it excites me. It I didn't quite get the watch for a few years. It just really seemed over expensive and kind of pointless. And then I bought one and now I don't want to live without it. Erica, so much of the stuff that you've said today is just so valuable. I cannot enough recommend your book to the people who are listening or watching on YouTube this time around. I really appreciate so much that you've come on the show. We're, we're able to give your opinion and wherever to, to try to mute your opinion. But I cannot, I, ha, I have been a fan of yours for so long, from your books, from meeting you in person, that it has just been an absolute treasure and an honor to have you on the show. And I really thank you for making the time to join us. It is such a pleasure to be able to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And we'd also like to give a special thanks to our sponsor for the episode, Triple Byte. That's Byte, B-Y-T-E. That's going to wrap things up for episode two for season nine of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. We will be back in two weeks and we are bringing in Pete Steinberger, who likes to say that he makes iOS apps that he defines as lickable. He is the developer of the PSPDF kit, and we're looking forward to speaking with him in two weeks. Until then, we throw things back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. 
And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.